So this is uh, continuing the study of David that uh, Tim's been taking us through. I did get to see a few postings on Instagram that his son Silas put that looks like they're having a good time in the Aegean Islands and Greece and everything, so a well-deserved vacation for them. Uh, we've been studying in his class the life of David, and uh, today we're going to be studying chapter 10. Now, I got to admit, when I read through chapter 10 the first time, I said, oh, that's, you know, battles with the Ammonites. Um, where's the meat? Where's the practical application? So we're going to do our best to find some things, some nuggets in there. Tim always says there's treasure in there, and you can find it. So we're going to find it together, hopefully. Uh, this is kind of the culmination of the golden era, if you could call it that, for David. And that's because the next chapter we're going to see that downward slope that he's going to be going down when he deals with Uriah the Hittite and Bathsheba. But that's kind of why I call this the vista before the valley. But there's also uh, some uh, acts of valiant, there's some valiant acts and some villainous acts. And so that's kind of the other title here, uh, Heroes and Villains. This chapter looks backward in a couple ways. It looks back at chapter 8 when David was consolidating his kingdom, beating the Philistines and the Edomites and the Moabites and, and so forth. But it also looks back at chapter 9 because David is demonstrating that word we looked at, that chesed with Mephibosheth, but he also does it here in chapter 10. We'll see that again. It also looks forward, though, because... Um, the next two chapters, 11 and 12, are going to have a lot to do with the Ammonites to include uh, what happens with Uriah the Hittite. He, he's actually killed in the battles with the Ammonites. So I don't want to get too much into that because I know Tim's going to be covering that in the next couple weeks. So with that, let's go ahead and jump in. Uh, if you haven't, uh, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be chapter 10. I try and put the verses up here on the screen as we go, so... See, here we go. Verse 1. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. So right off the bat, we kind of have to ask the question, okay, I've heard of the Ammonites. They're one of those ites out there. But just who are they? So um, I'm going to kind of get our bearings. Right there is where the Ammonites live, the kingdom of the Ammonites. And the Philistines were here, Edomites. Uh, anybody remember where the Edomites, what, who they came from? Esau. Esau, exactly. And the Moabites and the Ammonites are actually first cousins, if you could say that, because uh, the Moabites and the Ammonites, they both come from Lot through his two daughters. Uh, one daughter, two daughter, in uh, Genesis 19. Uh, it's interesting that both the Edomites and the Moabites or, excuse me, the Moabites and the Ammonites, they were specifically not in the list of the peoples or the uh, countries that the children of Israel were supposed to stay away from them. They were not take their land from them because Lot had been promised that and that was his inheritance. And so they were not supposed to take them when they came into the promised land. Um, but we'll see what happens with David here in a little bit. Uh, just as a side note, looking ahead, it's interesting. Solomon, what was, what was probably Solomon's biggest downfall? 
Andy, Fe Andy Fencer's not here, so. How many wives did he have? Well, he had a lot of wives, but one of the, some of his wives came, whoops, hit the wrong button there. Some of his wives came from Ammon and Moab, and in fact, Rehoboam, who's the king that takes Solomon's place, his mother was an Ammonite. So, in effect, the, the next king after Solomon's a half Ammonite. And then this, this feature right here, it's kind of important. This is called the King's Highway. And it ran from basically all the way down here in Egypt, out, up and around on the east side of the Jordan River, then up to what's called the Fertile Crescent, uh, the Euphrates River, the Tigris River, and down all the way into uh, Babylon. And what made it important was there was lots of rivers that crossed here, so you had a water supply in this, in this arid land. And so whoever controlled the King's Highway brought in a lot of revenue. It was a big moneymaker. And David actually takes that over in the course of the rest of this chapter, we'll see. So for, let's go ahead and look at the next verse. Verse 2. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. So I think you can see I've highlighted those two words there. You want to guess what that word is? That's that Hebrew word we looked at last week. I think you might recognize it there. Chesed, that covenantal love and mercy that, uh, that was so prevalent. It almost seems that the author of 2 Samuel has wanted to give us a double dose of David's chesed. It, it's almost like he wants to offset what is happening in 9 and 10 as a foil against what's going to happen in, in 11 and 12. And you can see the comparisons between these two chapters on the left, 9 and 10, with 11 and 12. Uh, we've got uh, these two chapters on the left. He's controlled by his love, his covenants, his memories. But in chapters 11 and 12, it's gonna be, he's going to be controlled by his passions and his secrets. Uh, he's going to be actively acting kindly and loyally on the left. And in throwing all love and chesed right out the window on the other one. And in the other one, he spares the life and mourns death. And in, in 11 and 12, he actually tramples and destroys life and causes death. We, we don't know much about Nahash. There's a Nahash mentioned earlier on, who's a king of the Ammonites. And the, most of the scholars, there's not consensus whether it's the same one here or whether it was a father or grandfather. But... Remember back, Sam, uh, Saul's great victory early on is because this king, Nahash, was saying to the people at uh, Jabez Gilead, you've got to surrender, and if you do, I'll, scrape out, I'll scoop out your right eye. I mean, it sounds like a fair deal, right? You know, surrender, and I'll scoop out your right eye. And then Saul came to the rescue. But because Saul was the uh, enemy of this Nahash, something happened we don't know what it is, but it allowed David, because David was basically Saul's enemy, and Nahash was Saul's enemy, so somehow Nahash evidently helped uh, David at one point, and David saw that as an act of loyalty. 
So um, it kind of can catch the irony here. David is actually helping both Saul's family in nine and in, in, in ten, he's helping his enemy. Look at verse three. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun, their lord, "Do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he's honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you?" you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So we don't know if Hanun's princes really believed that David was being a spy or if there was something else sinister going on. Um, as a matter of fact, David had just defeated the, their cousins, the Moabites, to the south. So they might have legitimately been saying, eh, we don't know what's going on here. But does that kind of sound familiar, that line of reasoning about somebody coming and spying? Do we remember where that was last used, that logic? I'm sorry? No. No, that they were, that, that has that angle like he might be spying with them, right. But th- there was an individual who specifically tells David, and the answer is here in 2 Samuel, Joab, remember? And Joab went to the king and said, what have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he's gone? You know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you are doing. So it seems pretty ironic that Joab uses this logic against David when he kills Abner. And then now it's going to be Joab who's going to be responsible to deal with this same line of logic that the Ammonites are are using. So this suspicion is, uh, generates, um, that's generated by these advisors, causes this new young king to do something regrettable. So we'll go to verse 4. So Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed And the king said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. So we kind of have a tendency sometimes to uh, chuckle when we read this story about shaving half a beard and cutting off their clothes and everything. But this is much worse than just bad haircuts and wardrobe malfunction. It's actually pretty significant. They they really could not have done something that was uh, more shameful for them. The some, some scholars say that the, these Israelites may have even felt they were violating the Torah, which they really weren't, but there's a couple passages in, in the law, uh, the Torah, that specifically tell the Israelite men how to cut or how not to cut their beard. And what often happens is with, when you're trying to obey the law and you're not sure what the right answer is, you kind of go to the extreme. And so Israelite men almost never shaved. Maybe for a ritual ceremony or some kind of promise they were keeping, but almost never they would shave their beards. So for them to have their beards cut in half like that was a big deal. So, But also, it was more also a, a direct assault on David's integrity and, and the nation of Israel. It, it was a bec- basically a declaration of war so that whatever treaty the Ammonites did have with Israel was, was thrown out the window. Let's look at the next verse. We're going to look at just the beginning of verse 6 here. 
when the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David. So the, the word stench here, we always think of kind of an odor, something that smells bad. And uh, it, the, the Hebrew word is ba'ash. And it can mean two things. It can actually mean a bad smell. And if you think back to Exodus, to the first plague, the Nile River is turned to blood, all the fish die, and it says there was a stench from the river. It stunk. It really did smell bad. But the other way the word was used is kind of more of a stinky situation in the way somebody sees you. Two chapters earlier from Exodus 7, um, Moses has been talking to Pharaoh saying, hey, let my people go. The plagues haven't happened yet. And Pharaoh is kind of already having a hard heart and a stiff neck. And he says to his, his people that are over the Israelite slaves saying, take away their straw. And they still have to produce the same amount. And so these workers are rebuking Moses saying, you've made us stink before Pharaoh. Now, obviously they didn't smell bad. Pharaoh's perception of them was that, they, that some of the translations are actually better than, uh, you know, the ESV's kind of literal, but some of the other translations, I think, did a good job of getting that, conveying that point, that obnoxious, odious, repulsive, loathsome, and utterly abhorrent. And I think that gives you a better sense of what, what that verse is trying to uh, show. So continuing on with verse 6, when the Ammonites saw that they'd become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians at Beth-Rohab and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Makkah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and of Rehob and the Minotob and Makkah were by themselves in the open country. So what has happened here is the Ammonites have kind of stirred up a hornet's nest and they hire these mercenaries. And that was a common practice in those days. And uh, the people that they hire uh, is actually a pretty substantial, significant uh, fighting force. And they're from a, a group up here. Uh, and it says Aram, and the, the, the Arameans uh, had been around in this area for some time. And if you see the word Aram, you might recognize or also hear the word Aramaic. That's the language that the Arameans spoke. And the Aramaic language is utilized in much of the whole area here. And in fact, at the time when Jesus was walking the earth, that was the language that people spoke in the common practice on the street corners talking to each other was Aramaic. It, it lasted for all the way up until almost the 700s once um, Muhammad and the, the, the victories that he did with Islam, then Arab, uh, Arabic became the primary language. But Aramaic is the language that lasts for you know, a thousand years, basically. And so these Arameans are the people up here. And just to show you where the, there's the, again, where the Ammonites are. And then there's the Beth Rehob, Aram, Zobah, Makkah, and Tob. So this group right here is all assembling into a fighting force to, to fight here. Let's uh, go to the next uh, verse 9. 
when Job saw that the battle was set against him both in the front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in the charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. So Joab is setting up this strategy here to divide the, divide the Israelite force uh, so that they have the flexibility to surge to whichever part is the stronger of the two. Uh, so you've got the force coming down here and here, and so he splits it right here. And that, that typically is not the best strategy when you look at all the, the, you know, the strategists and fighting military uh, strategy and, and everything, but it does work sometimes, and in this case, of course, it does work. When the Lord's on your side, it, it probably helps, but uh, it definitely worked for them. But uh, even though it's a risky plan um, and it's ripe for failure, look at uh, Joab's attitude here uh, in verse 12. It says, Be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab's a pretty complex character. He, um, throughout all of David's life, in, in fact, he's a prominent person in 2 Samuel. He appears, his name appears more than any other person in 2 Samuel except for David. So he's a main character throughout. Um, his, he's David's nephew. His uh, mother is Zariah, which is one of David's sisters. And if you remember back when Joab kills Abner along with his brother Abishai, what does David say about the sons of Zariah? They're too strong for me. He basically just, I can't deal with them because they are, they're such a, uh, a fighting force, these guys. They're, they're warriors, fierce warriors. And, they, and up until the end of David's life, Joab remains faithful and loyal to David not all the way to the end, because what happens at the very end of David's life, David has decided he wants Solomon to be his heir. And Joab, there's another one of David's sons, and Joab aligns himself with that one. And that actually costs him his life, even though he'd been loyal this whole time, because David, almost on his deathbed, he says to his son Solomon, remember what Joab did, and handle it, and Solomon handles it. So... But in the meantime, here in chapter 10, we're seeing Dave, uh, Joab is he's, he's a courageous person. Uh, he encourages his men to be courageous for God's people and for the land. And he reminds everyone that the Lord's in control, that the battle is the Lord's. So verse 13. So Joab... And the people who were with him drew near to the battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. So the Arameans, Syrians, they realize they're beaten. They flee back, retreat, and head back north. When the Ammonites see that the big boys have gotten beaten, they take off back into their fortified city, the capital of Rabah. And it appears this is the end of that battle. And so Joab 
heads back to Jerusalem. And though it doesn't say this, most people believe that while he, Joab, went back to Jerusalem and took some of the men with him, his brother Abishai stayed with his troops because the city was being uh, besieged. And there's a couple reasons we'll see why that, that probably plays out that way. Verse 15. But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. And Hadadizer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. They came to Halam with Shobach, the commander of the army of, the, of Hadadizer, at their head. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Halam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. So the, this, the uh, Syrians are not going to let this thing stand. And so what, they, what do they do is... They actually regroup here, but they get some of the people who are either aligned with them or subject to them way up here above the Euphrates. This is where Assyria will eventually form its kingdom, but this is before they become a power. And so right now, the Arameans control the area even up above here. So they put together all these people, and they're coming down. And uh, this was a such a significant battle that David himself is going to be leading the, the head of the Israelite army. And the outcome is going to result just like we saw in chapter 8 and chapter 10 here. And the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed all the Syrians, the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen, and wounded Shobach, the commander of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadazer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with, the, with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. I kind of like that last one. It's like, yeah, you guys kind of have to take care of yourself now. We're not going to... They, they, they've learned their lesson the hard way, and so they make peace with Israel. Um, but as I said earlier, this conflict... It's not really over because the, the relationship with the Ammonites is so interwoven in what we're going to see with David and Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite and the siege that's going on at the capital city of Rabbah. And so I don't want to get too much into chapter 11 because that's where Tim's going to be taking us next, next week. And uh, with uh, David and Bathsheba and then 12, chapter 12 afterwards. But just to kind of close the battle story, if you will. Um, verse 1 of chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. And so to find out the end of the story here, we have to go all the way to the end of chapter 12 and see the outcome and we also see this another picture of, of Joab's loyalty to David. Verse uh, 26 of chapter 12. Now Joab fought against Rabbah and the Ammonites and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I fought against Rabbah, moreover, I've taken the city of waters. Now, then gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. 
Verse 30, and he took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold, and in it was a precious stone. And it was placed on David's head, and he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount. And he brought out the people who were in it and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them toil at the brick kilns. And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. So that kind of ends the story of the Ammonites. Um, and we've been reading about David's life in First uh, and Second Samuel. And those stories, they, they tell pretty much the facts of what's going on with David. But I really believe in order to um, get a better full flavor of what's going on in David's life, to go from the facts to basically the heart of David, you kind of have to read the corresponding psalms that go with the stories. And there's pretty, a pretty extensive list, and I'm just going to do an abbreviated one, but I think it'll kind of show how there's certain psalms that specifically say, and sometimes the introduction, this is what was happening when, and you go back there. So first one you have there is 1 Samuel 19. Saul is, uh, has surrounded David's house with his men with the intention of killing him. You remember his wife, Micah, lets him out the window. But that psalm is Psalm 59. 1 Samuel tw uh, 22 and 24, uh, David's in a cave in both of these uh, chapters of 1 Samuel. And there are actually two psalms that correspond, that say when David was in the cave. Now, we don't know if it was chapter 22 or chapter 24, but in any case, there are two different psalms, Psalms uh, 57 and 142. Um, Psalm, uh, 1 Samuel 22, uh, 9 through 19, Doag the Edomite. Remember who he was? He's the one that killed all the priests. Uh, Saul had said to his men, you know, kill these priests, and you know, nah, we're not going to kill them. And Doag the Edomite did it. And so in Psalm 52, David kind of um, actually pokes fun at Doag a little bit, you know, saying, you know, mighty man, sarcastically to him. Uh, quick, quick assist. Y'all heard the phrase, dirty dog, usually in the South? That's where it comes from. <laughs> dirty dog. Okay, I like that. That's good. I like that assist. <laughs> Next one. Uh, remember David, as often as the case, he's hiding from Saul and the Ziphites. They say, hey, psst, Saul, he's over there. And so that's where you get uh, Psalm 54. And then, of course, next week and the week after, I'm guessing, we'll be uh, covering chapters 11 and 12, which deals with Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite. And to me, you know, I think we would all agree that the most famous, most popular psalm is 23rd Psalm. I think everybody knows it. Many have memorized it. Personally, I think the greatest psalm, especially if you're trying to get who David is and what his heart is, is Psalm 51. It's um, created me a clean heart, O oh God. Uh, renew a right spirit in me. Cast me not away from your presence. Don't let your Holy Spirit, take not your Holy Spirit from me. There's just so much in there that tells us who David is as a person. It's the kind of psalm I think we should probably read on a regular basis. Uh, I'm trying to remember, there's a time of, is it Lent sometime? When do we read Psalm 51? Almost every year. Is it Ash Wednesday? Or is, 
or Good Friday. It's Good Friday. I mean, we, I think it's the kind of psalm we should not just say for one day of the year. We, it's the kind that it can, we should make it our prayer because it truly shows the heart of David. We, we say that David sometimes is that replication of, of, of a precursor of Jesus in an imperfect way, to be sure, and pointing to Jesus. And we see in, in Philippians 2, we've, Tim's talked about the V-shape, Jesus on high, gives up everything to come down and die a death even on the cross, and then he's highly exalted. David's king, but he doesn't do something honorable. What he does is he sins horribly, and he's down here. And the only way he can make his way back up is in Psalm 51. He honestly repents. He knows he's done wrong. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't play the king card. Right off the bat, Nathan hits him, and I've blown it. My sin is ever before me. So I just a plug for Psalm 51. It's, it's, worth, it's worth spending some time in. Uh, 2 Samuel 15 through 17. Uh, David's son Absalom revolts. It breaks David's heart. That's captured in uh, Psalm 3. And then 2 Samuel 8, uh, which we, Tim covered a few weeks back. It's the victory over the Transjordan and some of those countries that we mentioned. That's Psalm 60. Um, Psalm 60 is a great psalm too. And in fact, the last two verses of uh, Psalm 60 are the kind that you could almost make a prayer for even today. Uh, oh, grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God, we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. That's a great promise and a great reminder. And then finally... The psalm that we just uh, covered today, or the chapters uh, 10 that we just covered today, it, it, this victory over all enemies. Now, chapter 2 of Psalm is a prophetic messianic psalm. It's one of the great ones pointing to Jesus. But as Tim pointed out uh, when he was covering chapter 7 of uh, 2 Samuel, the Davidic covenant, when we read about the promise God makes that there will always be an heir on the throne, it's kind of one of those things where you can look at the present because Solomon fits the bill in some ways, but it's actually looking forward all the way to Jesus. And Psalm 2 is, at, is actually the same way. So as let's read Psalm 2. I'll have it up on the screen here. And as we're reading it, picture how this psalm not only relates to David, and what we just covered here in chapter 10, but also picture it as who Jesus is and what it means for Jesus then and now. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. And I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. 
kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So, yes, all those nations surrounding David were plotting against them and things were looking bleak. But God had said, no, I've got my anointed one on my holy hill Zion in Jerusalem. But this is actually the glorious picture and reminder of who Jesus is, what he's done, and what we will see him do in the future. Um, there was a couple hands. That, we've got a couple of extra minutes here. Uh, John, you had a question? That's correct. That's right. But they also, the Ammonites had started it with that little thing they did with uh, the ambassadors, and then they got. That David took care of them all with the help of the Lord. So, any uh, any other questions? Or we've got a couple minutes here. You want to go back to the chart? That one. Yeah. And this is this is not a like I said a comprehensive one. There's probably still another four, five, six that go along with that. And sometimes, as I mentioned, in, in many of the Psalms, it will specifically say, and it's not an editor's comment. We actually figure that as part of Scripture when it says a miktah or a Psalm of David when he was, and it says this. And sometimes those introductions aren't there, but they're so obvious based on the content of the Psalm, you can tie them into these kind of, these kind of events. All right, let's go ahead and uh, let's close in a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for who you are, for your word, that you're in control. We see this world today and we can see how uh, the nations are still raging, still plotting against you and, and against your son, Jesus, your anointed one. But we thank you for not just the victories of old, but the victory especially that Jesus did for us on the cross over death, over the grave. So help us to walk uh, victoriously with a joyous spirit so that we can serve you knowing that the battle has already been won and we are free in you because of your love for us. We love you in Jesus' name.